Hello, and welcome to our podcast series, AGG Talks, Antitrust and White Collar Crime Roundup, in which we cover the legal facts surrounding recent cases, trends, and hot topics related to antitrust and white collar crime, with some of the most foremost legal analysts in the country. My name is Jeff Jakobowicz. I am a trial attorney with Arnell Golden Gregory, an adjunct law professor at American University uh, Washington College of Law, and I chair the firm's antitrust group. I have recently appeared a number of times on CNN regarding white collar criminal issues related to the various Donald Trump indictments, uh, Hunter Biden, Rudy Giuliani, etc. I'm joined today by Barbara McQuaid, a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, a law professor at the University of Michigan, and a star MSNBC legal analyst. As a former U.S. attorney, Barbara oversaw cases involving public corruption, terrorism, corporate fraud, a fraud, theft of trade secrets, and many others. She's here with me today to talk about the latest updates in the pending litigation and the four indictments against Donald Trump, an indictment against Hunter Biden, and the recent Rudy Giuliani decision. We'll also likely address other issues related to timing of these cases. Barbara, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. So, Barbara, how do you think the timing of the D.C. case against Donald Trump, the Jack Smith case, will be affected by the Supreme Court granting cert on the obstruction issue and considering cert on the absolute immunity double jeopardy question? Yeah, so two separate issues going on there, three really, um, that are all kind of intriguing. So first, with regard to the obstruction case, you know, in this case called Fisher, one of the January 6th attack cases, the court has agreed to take up the question of whether the obstruction statute can be used for efforts to interfere with the certification count on January 6th. It's an interesting question. And the fact that they took it up makes me think that there's some real doubt in their minds about how this statute applies. And if you look at the Roberts court and the way they have dealt with obstruction in the past and public corruption cases, they have narrowed the scope of some of these statutes. So I think there's a real chance they reverse the conviction on that count. We may not know until June what the outcome of that is. And so I think that puts Jack Smith in a little bit of a situation where he may want to have clarity on that question before he goes forward with this case. I mean, it doesn't necessarily stop his case. He could go forward. He's got two counts of that among his four counts in his indictment of that same obstruction statute, 1512C. And so he could go forward. He's got two other counts. And so if he got convictions on all four and two of them ultimately fell away because of an adverse decision by the Supreme Court in Fisher, he'd still have the other two and maybe nothing to worry about. Although I could imagine an argument by Trump that said, well, some of the evidence was admitted only because of those 1512 charges. And there's some sort of spillover effect onto the other counts. And so those are tainted as well. And I'm entitled to a new trial. Well, can he, um, can't Jack Smith just modify his indictment, amend his indictment, yep. drop the two obstruction counts? Yep. So that would be another option, which would be just to drop them and go forward on the other two. It makes the case less strong. It means perhaps some of the other evidence about his activities that day might not be admissible. And so he could go forward with the case, but it's probably a less strong case. Or his third option, Jeff, is to wait until the court makes its decision. And then he can see what's left of it. If the uh, court strikes down that part of the statute or its application to these cases, 
then he could dismiss those counts. Or if the court upholds them, he could go forward on all four. Now, why might he wait till June? Well, it may be that answering your other question about how long will it take the Supreme Court to decide the question of immunity and double jeopardy could push the trial back until close to June anyway. Even if they were to decide quickly, they would get briefing in January, hold oral argument, have a decision. I think that March trial date is probably in jeopardy anyway by 60 to 90 days. So why not just push it back until June? And that's because while the appeal is pending, the district court judge has put a stay on everything. You know, she said it's jurisdictional. If he's immune, the whole purpose of that is to be free from the burdens of litigation, not just trial, but pretrial motions and discovery and all of those things, including jury selection. They had planned to send out jury questionnaires very soon. I think all of that comes to a halt as well. And so while the pause button is pressed, we're going to see about 90 days of delay until we get a decision in this case. So maybe it makes sense to put all of this together, wait for clarity from the Supreme Court and agree to an adjournment of the trial date until you know these cases are decided. Well, if we wait till June, will there be a realistic possibility of the trial ending before the election? I think so. I mean, the election's not till November. So a trial that starts in June, uh, the sixth month till the 11th month is uh, uh, five months. I don't think this trial would take that long to uh, to try. So, yeah, I think if it starts in June, they could get through it before the election. And, you know, this one of all the of all the trials strikes me as the one that goes to the heart of uh, what was so horribly wrong about the last election. It seems really important to get it resolved before the next election. And how long do you think this trial would take? Because it's really only a one defendant case. Yeah, hard to say. It is one defendant. It's four counts. There's a lot of overlap there, but there are a number of different schemes that are alleged. There's the scheme to weaponize the Justice Department, for example, involving Jeffrey Clark. There's the scheme with the fake slates of electors. Uh, That's part of it. There's the pressure on state legislators uh, where, you know, Giuliani and others are calling people like Rusty Bowers and the Michigan legislators, asking them to uh, reconvene their legislatures. There's the pressure on election officials like Brad Raffensperger in um, in Georgia. So a number of different schemes. But, you know, if I think there's five schemes altogether, if you did a week of a scheme, five weeks for the government's case, maybe a week for the defense case, six weeks altogether, that seems plausible to me. And what about the absolute immunity and double jeopardy arguments that's currently before the Supreme Court, how strong do you think they are and how will that impact on the on the D.C. case? I think these two arguments are weak. So although I, I mentioned I have some concerns about the 1512 obstruction, I, if I were a betting person, I would bet the court to rule against Jack Smith on that one. But I think these two are um, very weak arguments for the former president. You know, first with regard to immunity. A lot of the same reasoning that we just saw the 11th Circuit employ in rejecting Mark Meadows' request to remove the case from state to federal court, this idea that Donald Trump was somehow acting within the scope of his authority as president when he engaged in the conduct that's alleged here. Certainly much of the activity of a president is insulated from criminal liability if he is simply exercising his duties of office. But here, Um, He goes well beyond what the court has referred to as the outer uh, periphery of the duties of president. Administering elections is within the province of the states. The Constitution gives that 
job to the states to administer their elections. So when he's calling Raff- Brad Raffensperger in Georgia or he's sending um, Rudy Giuliani down there to advocate before the legislature or he's sending Mark Meadows down to witness the audit, he is acting in the role of a candidate for president. He's not acting as the president himself. And so I think that one's weak. Then the double jeopardy question I also think is weak. Um, you know, once you've been convicted of a crime, you cannot be retried for that same crime. But uh, we see um, this idea of different sovereigns operate all the time to defeat that. So if you are prosecuted in state court for one kind of crime uh, and then prosecuted, uh, say acquitted, prosecuted again in federal court, there is not a double jeopardy bar there because the state and federal governments are separate sovereigns with separate bodies of law. We saw that in the Rodney King case back in the 90s. Uh, there's an acquittal of the police officers in the state. The feds come in, a charge, charge the officers, and there's a conviction there. So here, I think it's even more attenuated because it wasn't even a criminal proceeding. It was a political proceeding of impeachment where there's a decision made whether the person should be removed from office. Very different kind of proceeding than a criminal proceeding. Even Mitch McConnell, at the time he voted against impeachment um, or conviction on impeachment, said, you know, we have courts for that. This is a political process. And uh, I'm going to vote no here. But certainly uh, the, the rule of law may have a different answer for Donald Trump down the road. And that's where we are now. So I think I think that argument fails as well. You know, Barbara, it's interesting when you were discussing the absolute immunity legal issues, it almost sounded like the 11th Circuit opinion yesterday yeah. in the Mark Meadows removal statute. Yeah, really very similar arguments, right? The idea that I'm a Fed and you can't touch me in the state or I'm a Fed and so I'm immune. Kind of the same arguments. Um, certainly, you know, things you do within the scope of your job duties are protected. But once you get uh, beyond those things, you know, Donald Trump famously said I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters. Maybe true. But if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue, I don't think anyone would argue that he would be immune from criminal prosecution. And the same was true here. You know, he's only alleged to have done these crimes. There will certainly be uh, a right to due process and a fair trial to decide whether that's true or not. But the allegations on their face are all about acting outside the scope of his duties as president. And so it's far more like shooting someone on Fifth Avenue than it is like giving the State of the Union address. And would the um, immunity argument impact on the two state cases pending against him, two state criminal cases, as well as the Mar-a-Lago case? So I would say yes to Georgia and no to New York. So, and no to Mar-a-Lago. And that's uh, a function of timing. And so the Georgia RICO case is very parallel to the federal election interference case in that it involves activities that Donald Trump undertook while he was president. And so if he is immune for activities that he undertakes as president, then it counts in the federal case as well as the Georgia case. The Mar-a-Lago case occurs uh, after he's president, after he's out of office. It is the willful retention of classified documents or national defense documents, as well as obstruction of the investigation. All of that occurred after he leaves office. So there's no immunity argument there. And then with regard to New York, most of that activity occurs before he takes office. And certainly the scheme takes, uh, and the conspiracy takes place before he takes office. It uh, occurs to uh, allegedly pay hush money to the adult film store star just before the election, uh, October of 2016. There are a couple of checks that get paid while he is in office. But again, I think for the same reason, the immunity argument fails in the Jack Smith election interference case. It fails there as well because writing checks to porn stars 
is not within the scope of the duties of the president. And do you think if the um, Judge Chutkin case gets delayed, uh, the New York criminal action or the Georgia Rico case would jump ahead and go to trial before that? I think the New York case absolutely would. It's set for trial in late March. I didn't, you know, there was never really a world where we were going to see one start on March 4th and the other start on March 25th. But if the Jack Smith case gets delayed till June or so, then there's plenty of room in late March for the New York case to go. I don't see that as being a lengthy case. I see that as going a week or two. And so that could take place in March and that one could be resolved and out of the way. I don't think we're going to see the Georgia Rico case leapfrog just because the first date that Fonnie Willis has been asking about is August. And so I don't know that everybody's going to have their ducks in a row in time for a trial before that date. Um, and even then, she has said she believes the trial could last well into the 2025, even if it starts in August. And so I think there's a real question there as to whether that trial should start if Donald Trump is the nominee uh, for the Republican Party and there will be a trial in November. It does seem that there could be perhaps an issue there with the judge not wanting to have a trial ongoing on Election Day. I would imagine if I'm Donald Trump's counsel, I would be leery about going to trial first in New York, particularly after what happened with Judge Engeron in the uh, the civil case against the Trump organization. Would you agree? You know, I'm not sure. I think that's one that, um, you know, he has portrayed as uh, all about, you know, sex and morality and witch hunt. Uh, and so that one may be just sort of easier to explain away. I think the evidence appears to be strong, although, you know, you've got Michael Cohen there as a witness with some baggage. So um, I don't know how uh, afraid they are of that case. Uh, it's a short case. I don't know that jail time is likely in that case either. And so it may be that that wouldn't be such a bad one to start with if you're Donald Trump's lawyers. There's a chance they beat the rap if they can discredit Michael Cohen. And even if he's convicted, jail time seems un unlikely. And it all just becomes part of the narrative that it's all a hoax and a witch hunt. Um, and he's the victim and he can use it as campaign fodder as he has done to date. Well, Michael Cohen uh, has some credibility issues, but generally prosecutors take witnesses the way they find them. Isn't that right? Oh, yes. And, you know, I think there's a good argument there that prosecutors will say, you know, we didn't choose Michael Cohen. Donald Trump chose Michael Cohen. And I also think that they will only use testimony that they can corroborate. Uh, and because it's a false documents case, I think proving this case will mostly be about showing the jury documents. And you know, documents are great pieces of evidence because they don't lie and they don't forget. They're not biased. They don't shade the truth. They don't hold grudges. And so I think just you know showing these checks that were written, showing the dates that they were written. I think they also have some uh, witnesses from the National Enquirer and its parent corporation. So I don't think the whole case rises or falls with Michael Cohen. So it's it's you know it's no walk in the park for Donald Trump, but I think because it is unlikely to present jail time for him, uh, that is one that is probably the least of his concerns. And what about the Mar-a-Lago case? That's a pretty strong case against the president, the former president, excuse me, isn't it? Jeff, I would say that's probably the strongest. And the reason for that is this is a charge, um, willful retention of government documents, that is filed by the government uh, on, a, on a somewhat regular basis uh, against former employees or current employees who take documents. You know, there's that man, Jack, Jack Texera, the uh, contractor who disclosed documents on Discord. So um, the government is accustomed to that charge. It doesn't rely on any novel legal theories. 
Um, you know, Donald Trump can say he declassified documents all he wants, but the charges don't rely on classification. It's charged under the Espionage Act, which simply requires proof that the documents pertain to the national defense. And, you know, from the face of them, they'll be able to prove that if there's any information about the national defense, which reportedly they do. And then the obstruction evidence in that case seems based on the language in the indictment, like it's going to be very powerful that they've got, you know, people trying to move boxes and destroy video. And so uh, that case seems very strong. The thing that seems um, perhaps the most uncertain there is the judge's uh, slow walk, which seems like, uh, I don't know that she's in the bag for Donald Trump, but she seems fearful of trying this case and willing to uh, indulge in delays as long as possible. Right. That that doesn't look like it's going to trial before the election at all. Yeah. And you have the whole classified documents issue. Yeah. Uh, and let's jump back to New York and the president's lawyer or former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who was hit with a very large verdict in D.C. this week. Um, and I say New York because Rudy Giuliani lives in New York. Do you know why that case was in D.C.? I suppose that is the nexus of where the um, comments took place. Um, you know, this was a, a suit in defamation based on diversity jurisdiction. Rudy Giuliani, I suppose, is a resident of New York. But if the offending comments took place while he was in Washington, D.C., that would be an appropriate place for venue. Perhaps they thought they could get a favorable jury there, which it appears they did with the $148 million judgment against him. And what are the chances of the plaintiffs collecting on that judgment? Yeah, I don't know about 148 million, but I know one of the things that they did yesterday that was pretty shrewd, uh, they did two things really. One is they got the judgment and in the judgment, Jeff, they were able to get language that said it was a willful and inten intentional uh, tort, which will be very valuable if um, Rudy Giuliani files for bankruptcy, because as, right. as you and I have discussed, um, when you reach that standard, then um, the tort is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So the debt would follow him. The other thing they did yesterday in getting that judgment is they said they wanted it so that they could immediately attach to all his bank accounts and put liens on his properties. So, you know, he reportedly has a um, apartment in Manhattan that's valued at $6 million or so he says, um, you know, bank accounts. He's got some revenue apparently from podcasts. So I don't know that they'll get 148 million, but they have, uh, you know, perhaps the ability to get a lot of money from him. I guess the other issue is in, in D.C., certainly, when you have a judgment of that nature, you could start taking asset depositions and asset discovery to determine what assets Rudy, Rudy Giuliani really has and what their yeah. value is. And Giuliani has to appear for these depositions. What happens if he doesn't appear? Yeah. So that's a really interesting question, because as you likely know, in his defamation case, he refused to turn over discovery related to his assets right. uh, because he didn't want to reveal that. So, I mean, I suppose he gets hit with contempt of court in the same way. Just yesterday, the Moss and Freeman filed another lawsuit asking for an injunction, ordering him to stop defaming them because he continues to do so, repeating the same lies. And I suppose the remedy for either refusing to appear for the creditor's exam or refusing to comply with the injunction is contempt of court, which could bring with it jail. So perhaps that's something that we'll see as a, a final lever to get Rudy Giuliani to comply with some of these court orders. So, Barbara, we're running out of time, but let me ask you one last question and we'll shift to Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden owed taxes. He paid the taxes back. He paid the interest back and he still was charged with felonies. 
As a former U.S. attorney in Michigan, would you have charged the defendant in that kind of context? Yeah, so every case, it's important to look at all the facts. Really, when someone pays back the taxes and the penalties, we would stand down. And the reason is that you know federal prosecutors have scarce resources. In my former district, in the Eastern District of Michigan, we were able to charge about 1,000 cases a year. And so as a result, we would look carefully at every case and say, is this worth our resources? And ordinarily, if someone had paid back the taxes, we'd say no. The one factor here that might tip it in favor of prosecution is this wasn't simply failure to pay taxes or failure to file returns, but it included um, falsehoods and concealment, um, you know, saying that people were on the payroll who were former girlfriends and things like that. That kind of deception and dishonesty would certainly cut in favor of a criminal prosecution. You know, I think they had it right when they were going to allow him to plead guilty to the misdemeanor counts. You know, that seemed like an appropriate compromise that said, we're not going to let you walk, but we also aren't going to come after you with, you know, everything we've got. But I think once he rejected that plea, uh, you know, after it kind of fell apart, I think they kind of had to go forward because otherwise it looks like you're just bluffing when you work out some compromise deal like that. So I think all in all, it's not a prosecution I would quibble with. The the violations are really quite egregious. I would imagine his defense will be he, he couldn't make a reasonable decision because he had a drug problem. And the counter to that will be, well, he was paying off his car and so forth. He made other payments. Why couldn't he pay his taxes? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, they're also, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these speaking indictments with a lot of allegations in it. It isn't the case that I was just off, you know, getting high all the time and oblivious to the world around me. He's having conversations with accountants and his ex-wife about, you know, the need to file the returns and getting the documents together and doing other kinds of things. And so I think that will be an uphill battle for him. Well, Barbara, I would like to uh, thank you for joining me today. We hope the listeners found this discussion informative. If you have any questions or would like to submit your feedback or topics for future podcasts, please feel free to reach out to me, Jeff Jakobowitz. You can find my contact information at agg.com. Future podcast episodes will be distributed through the AGG website and social media pages. Thank you again, Barbara. Thank you, Jeff.